following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. Welcome. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Derek McCollum. I'm one of the pastors here. That was Mike Habercorn leading us in the call to worship this morning. And we are so grateful to be here worshiping the Lord. We just started last week uh, a new series on the book of Nehemiah, Old Testament book of Nehemiah. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Nehemiah. Um, where we left off after chapter one was that Nehemiah had heard the news of things in Jerusalem not being so good. He's in Persia. And we're going to pick up here in chapter 2 to hear what Nehemiah does upon hearing that news. So if you've got a Bible, open it up. Nehemiah chapter 2, I'll read verses 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and when I had given him a time, and then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word this morning. We're grateful for Nehemiah and his testimony, and particularly for his testimony to your goodness. Lord, it is that goodness that we rely on to open our ears and our eyes and soften our hearts today, that we might hear and see and know your word and be changed by it. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I know if you are like me, you have had times in your life where you've had to make a decision whether or not to purchase that car, whether or not to take that job. And in decisions like that, especially for those who really love spreadsheets, right, you can usually make a nice list of pros and cons, and you can kind of come to that conclusion, that decision, in a nice orderly manner. But what about things that get a little stickier, a little trickier? Your son has been taking illegal drugs, you're not sure how to stop it, or has had issues with mental health, and you're not even sure you're equipped with how to talk to him about it. What do you do in that situation? 
Do you, do you tighten your grip or do you loosen it? Do you cling more tightly into more control? Do you spring into action? Do you do something or do you wait and pray and be patient and wait on the Lord? Or what if you're in a marriage where you've been in counseling for the last two years and things haven't really gone anywhere and you're not really sure what's going to happen? And it's painful and it's scary and you don't know whether to kind of loosen your grip pray, wait, be patient, pray that the Lord change you and change your spouse, or start to take some action. Call the elders, call your friends, tell everybody that you're in a crisis. What do you do? Or maybe it's not just taking a new job, but your work environment is such that it's really hard to be there. It's a pretty toxic place to be. It's hard between you and your boss. The environment, the organizational life is difficult, and you love your job and the mission of your job, but you're not sure how to live in that context right now. What do you do? Do do you wait in patience and in prayer, or do you tighten your grip? Do you go talk to your boss and tell him exactly what's going on? You know, actually, all three of those things that I just mentioned are happening in our congregation right now. The details have been changed to keep people's privacy, but generally speaking, all of those things are actually happening in our congregation. And my guess is that many of you can even identify with those kinds of decisions, places in your life where you're not really sure what to do, how to move forward. Do you pause or do you move forward in action? Well, I think actually Nehemiah, as we open up chapter 2, is in a very similar situation. Nehemiah is actually in a place where he has heard the news of something terrible, and he's not actually sure what to do about it. And it's actually really beautiful. God has given us this example of Nehemiah embracing both things at once. He not only pauses for prayer, but he also proceeds with courage. And he leans into that tension And I think that the Lord actually has something to show us this morning about what it's like to lean into that tension ourselves, to both pause in prayer and to proceed in courage. So let's talk about those two things. We'll start with the first. What do I mean by the fact that he has paused for prayer? Well, if you were here last week, you remember, Nehemiah gets word from Jerusalem that things are bad. The city wall is broken down. The gates are burned by fire. There's things that are just in disarray in Jerusalem, his home country and home city, where he says his, his, uh, his fathers, his ancestors are buried. And so what he does in chapter 1 is he begins to mourn. He cries. He starts to pray and fast. And we're told in chapter 1, actually, that is the month of Chislev. As we open up chapter 2, it's the month of Nisan. Now, I know most of you are pretty up on your ancient Persian dating uh, calculations, but let me just remind you, that's actually about four to five of our months. Between Chislev and Nisan is about four and a half months of what we would call months. So it's a pretty long time. And what do we assume that he's been doing for this four and a half month gap? Well, it's actually pretty clear that he's been praying this whole time. That Nehemiah has actually paused to pray and to cry out to the Lord. He is weeping, he is fasting, 
He is mourning and he is praying. And it looks like from the text, he's doing that all the way up until the time that we see him again here in chapter 2. Because when he presents himself before the king, what does the king say? You don't look so good. You look like maybe you've been in mourning. You look like maybe you've been fasting because I can tell. And the king says, what's going on? Nehemiah has been praying for four months and crying out to the Lord to do something. It's also interesting, I think, to see how that prayer continues, right? If you look actually further on when, he, uh, when the king asks him what's going on in verse 4, the king said to me, what are you requesting? What's Nehemiah's response? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Isn't that amazing? It's like it's a three-way conversation here instead of just two-way. Nehemiah asks him what's going on, what he wants, and ne- I mean, uh, the king, Artaxerxes, asks Nehemiah what he wants, and Nehemiah goes immediately directly to the Lord. His initial response is to begin to pray. I love actually the pattern, I think, that Nehemiah lays out for us here, even for the kinds of prayer that we're called to engage in. There's three, I think, that are really helpful categories for us. First of all, there is regular prayer. Now, we don't see this as much in Nehemiah, but we do see it all throughout the Bible. In fact, we see it during this same time period in someone like Daniel, who is pausing to pray in the morning, who is pausing to pray at noon, who is pausing to pray in the evening. He's going about regular times of prayer where he's coming before the Lord and communing with God. Russell told me just this week how much he has been helped by beginning to pray the hours, which is simply an ancient way of setting aside time, morning, noon, evening, then usually before bed, to pray. Very oftentimes either using the words of Scripture or some written prayers simply to pause, maybe even for just a couple of minutes, to reset and address the Lord in prayer. That kind of regular daily prayer is really the backbone of our prayer life. But also Nehemiah introduces to us a second kind of prayer, and that is actually periodic prayer, prayer that springs up from particular needs. Nehemiah hears the words of what's going on in Jerusalem, and he dedicates himself to praying for that thing and for praying for it for quite a long time, actually. So not only is he regularly praying, but he's also praying periodically for the things that come up, the needs that come up in our life, the different things that are going on where we get to say, Lord, I need to talk with you about this particular thing. I need to pray about this thing that's heavy on my heart or on my friends, the particular needs. And then the third thing we see here is consistent or constant prayer constant prayer, right? The kind of prayer that's in just a regular conversation with the Lord, that as things come up in the midst of your day, it's that conversation that continues. That's what happens when the king says, what do you want me to do? And immediately Nehemiah prays. So there's the regular prayer, there's the periodic prayer, and there's that constant conversational prayer. And Nehemiah is actually embracing that idea of pausing, of waiting, of diving in and digging deep into prayer when he's in the midst of this difficult situation. There's the first side of our tension. But like a rope that's on a pulley, we can't let go of the other side either. We've got to keep those things together. So let's look at the other side. Not only does Nehemiah pause to pray, but he actually, even in the midst of that, proceeds with courage. Now, where am I getting this? 
A lot of where I'm getting this is actually what Nehemiah has already told us at the very end of chapter 1 about his profession. At the end of chapter 1, Nehemiah closes out chapter 1 by saying, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, if you don't know what a cupbearer is, this doesn't make any sense, so let me explain it to you. In the ancient world, there was a position in the king's court called cupbearer. And they had really kind of three distinct functions, three kind of big things that they were responsible for. The first thing was that the cupbearer was responsible for keeping the wine. They're the ones who poured the wine at the parties. They're the ones who kept the wine, who made sure they had an adequate stock. That month, Nisan, actually probably in the Persian calendar, was also the month where they would have a lot of parties. It was a celebration month. And if you start to look at your history, the Persian kings were actually pretty famous or infamous for their drinking parties. And so they could consume a good deal of wine. And the cupbearer was the guy who was basically in charge of the party. If you've seen Downton Abbey, you know, he's Mr. Carson, the head butler, who's the one who's in charge of everything, right? And he's going to make sure everything from the dinner at the evening meal is perfect to the large parties that they're going to throw. He's the guy who's responsible for making sure everything happens. And if they run out of wine, they're coming to the cupbearer to make sure that they can get some more. So that's the first thing. He's kind of the manager in charge of the parties. The second thing, though, is he's also the chief taster. Now, that's not like he's the chef's helper to make sure, ooh, does this taste good? Does it need a little more salt? It's actually a lot more dangerous than that. In the ancient world, um, remember, you know, we hadn't figured all of chemistry out yet, and so there was still some stuff we weren't sure, is this going to be good or not? And there was no refrigeration. So, you know, if a little meat had sat out a little too long, it could be pretty bad for the meal. And so you had the cupbearer, the chief taster, be the guy who was going to taste everything to make sure it was okay. But he was mostly even looking not for the natural spoiling of the food, but for the unnatural poisoning of the food. Because in the ancient world, this was one of the best ways to assassinate a king. If you wanted to assassinate some sort of leader, poisoning was pretty popular. In fact, Artaxerxes III, two guys after this king, and Artaxerxes IV were both poisoned. In fact, uh, most historians think by the same guy. Socrates was poisoned. Demosthenes was poisoned. Alexander the Great, they think, was poisoned. Poisoning was one of the easy ways to get in and kill somebody that you didn't want around anymore. And so the kings had this great kind of plan. Well, we'll just bring in somebody else to drink all of the wine first, to taste it first, and if he dies, then I don't want to have it. Pretty big job, right? To be the guy that makes sure that things aren't poisoned. And because of those first two things, the guy that is in charge of all the wine and the guy that's going to taste the poison before you have to, the cupbearer also, thirdly, usually got pretty close to the king. He was a pretty trusted advisor to the king. In fact, you even kind of see this in the text. Nehemiah is close enough to the king physically that the king can see that he's sad. And he's close enough emotionally and relationally to the king that the king actually asks him about it. And so here's Nehemiah with a very, very important position in the king's court. In fact, you could look back at some historical records that show that cupbearers sometimes were even considered like second in charge in those kingdoms. And Nehemiah is this Jew who's risen to prominence in Persia, and he's cupbearer to the king. He's got a big job. 
a good job, an important job, and a job that all goes to risk if he decides to just do something that might make the king mad. He's putting himself at quite a bit of risk to risk his power and his position and his place in the court of Artaxerxes to just address even these questions. Here's the second thing, actually, to keep in mind is also about his job is that we're told he's the chief cupbearer, which also means he's not the chief builder. You ever notice that? It'd be much, it'd make a lot more sense, right, if these folks came and they said, hey, listen, things are broken down in Jerusalem. The wall needs rebuilding. The gates are all burned. And so we need you to go do something about it. And I was the chief builder to the king, right? That makes sense to us. But he's not. He's got a totally different job. And instead of him saying, listen, not my deal, right? Not my job. Not sure what to do about that. Maybe I'll connect you with somebody. Don't worry. I'll text you his number, and y'all can connect. And he gets himself out of the loop. But that's not what Nehemiah does. The third thing, actually, that makes this really risky for Nehemiah is actually who he's talking to. This is the Persian king, Artaxerxes I. And if you actually start to dig a little deeper into Nehemiah and the companion book Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah are supposed to actually go together. If you look back actually at Ezra chapter 4, you see some interesting things. Now, we talked about the big picture, kind of big scope last week, right? That God's people are actually exiled first to Babylon and then to Persia because of their sin. And so the reason why Jerusalem is broken down is because God's people have sinned and, his, and, God's, and the, the people's enemies have conquered them. That's why it's broken down. But that's actually been some time. This is probably sometime close to about 100 years later, and things are still broken down. Well, in the midst of that time, there's actually been a few different building projects being done, or at least being tried is that people have started to try and rebuild things. They've started to rebuild the temple and actually succeeded most of the way at this time. They've started even to try and rebuild the walls and the gates. But guess what? They got stopped. In Ezra chapter 4, we see this, is that the enemies, Ezra tells us, the enemies of Judah, the enemies of God's people who are living in Jerusalem at the time, they see folks trying to rebuild stuff. They see folks trying to rebuild the walls and rebuilding the temple and rebuilding everything, and they don't want it to happen. And so these guys actually get together, and they write a letter to the king of Persia, and they say, listen, there's these guys here in Judah, in Jerusalem here, and they're rebuilding the walls, and they're rebuilding the houses, and they're rebuilding the temple. And you know what will happen if they do that? If they succeed, they're going to rebel. They're not going to pay their taxes. They're not going to obey you. And so you should put a stop to this rebuilding project. And they write a letter and they send it off to King Artaxerxes I. And he sends a letter back that says, guess what? You're right. Stop it. No more rebuilding. Stop the rebuilding project completely. And so what is most probable, actually, is that these guys from Jerusalem who came in chapter 1 have actually come because of the stopping of that rebuilding project, and they've come to see uh, Nehemiah, and they've said, hey, things are in ruins because we're trying to rebuild them, and they can't be rebuilt. And so Nehemiah goes and stands in front of, guess who? Artaxerxes I, the very guy who just stopped the building project. And he asks him to start it again. Man, that's risky. That's tough. 
He's putting himself out there, isn't he? He's proceeding with courage in the midst of a lot of difficulty, the potential loss of his position and place, the fact that he's not even a builder in charge of those things, and the fact that he's going to actually talk to somebody who's really against all of the things that he wants to happen. So what do we take from this? What do we take from this great combination of pausing to pray and actually proceeding with courage? Let me give you a couple of examples. Here's one that just actually happened last week. We had someone in our body, a widow, who had some problems going on in her house, physical problems in her house. She was talking to a friend at church, and she was talking about those problems and explaining those to her. And they prayed for those things. They paused for prayer. And then you know what happened the next, or that afternoon, literally that day? That woman's husband went and fixed those things at her house. Friends, there are times we need to spring into action. (laughs) We need to actually engage. And we pray, and we wait, and we walk forward at the same time, and we do what needs to be done. Secondly, maybe we can talk about one of those application points that we talked about at the first. What if you're that family, right, who's been in counseling for two or four or ten years, and things seem to be just kind of going nowhere? What do you do? Do you tighten your grip? Do you loosen it? Do you stop? Do you, are you patient? Do you jump in? Are you aggressive? Well, I think Nehemiah actually gives us a great example of what it looks like to lean into that tension of pausing to pray, crying out to the Lord to do something, and actually moving forward with courage, opening yourself in ways that seem really scary, addressing things that you've never addressed before, beginning to take steps in faith to actually do really risky stuff and see what the Lord does. I'm actually going to give you an example even of what we're going through right now as a church. So maybe some of you remember last February, I stood up here in a congregational meeting and said, we're going to start looking for a piece of property or a building where we can dig some deep roots into New Braunfels. We want to be a church that's going to be here for a long time, and we think actually having physical property is the way that God is going to enable us to dig deeper roots here. And we said we're commissioning a group to go look for property. And I also probably mentioned at some point we're probably going to launch a capital campaign or a generosity initiative to actually help fund the purchase of that property. And maybe you have been thinking about this since that time. Hey, how are we going to match these two things together? We said we're going to kind of start walking down this path. And we're also going to start walking down this path, and we're kind of walking them together, and we're not really sure what's going to happen. What happens if we raise money and we don't have a property? What happens if we have a property and we don't have any money? How are these things going to actually match up? Well, here's what we've been doing. Your elders have been praying consistently, regularly, periodically, sporadically, that God would actually give us the place and that God would provide for us the means by which to purchase that place. And then we have been moving forward courageously in looking for that and moving forward with our timelines. And I do want you to know that something has hit our radar that is interesting, that is potentially 
really great. And we're not really sure if this is the place. And we're not really sure even if we think it's the place that it'll end up being the place. And we're not really sure about the timing and how it'll match up with the way that we proceed with this generosity initiative, which, by the way, most of you probably got a letter in the mail this week saying that we're launching October the 15th. So we're moving forward with our timelines, and we're not really sure how they're going to match up. And I really just want to invite you to join us in praying and in moving forward in courage. Will you pray that God would provide for us the right place for us to be? And will you pray that God would provide the means for us to purchase that place? And will you pray that God would give us courage even to walk forward in some murky situations, some scary, some kind of risky situations, that he would give us faith in him as we continue to move into that? Now, obviously, I can't give you very many details publicly, so you'll just have to wait. I'll ask you to pray for your own patience as well. But please know this, that before we make any big decisions, you will be involved. All right, let's kind of conclude with the way that Nehemiah concludes in verse 8, telling us why we actually can do this. Why can we embrace that wonderful tension between pausing in prayer and proceeding in courage? How is it that we can actually move forward into murky, scary, difficult situations? Well, he tells us this actually in verse 8. If you've got a Bible, look at it again with me. It's really such a beautiful phrase. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. I love the way, actually, that uh, the NIV translates this. It says, and because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. Why did the king give Nehemiah what he wanted? Was it because of Nehemiah's persuasiveness? Was it because Nehemiah just fit that job perfectly? Was it because even that the king thought, oh, he's so sad, I should give him what he wants? No, the Bible actually tells us why the king, Artaxerxes, the Persian king, the godless king, gave Nehemiah the ability to go back to his homeland and begin to rebuild the walls around the city to, by the way, defend the city from attackers, which would have been weird. Why did he do that? Because the hand of God was at work. Because the Lord was actually working. When I worked in campus ministry for an organization called Reformed University Fellowship, one of our presuppositions, the things that we held most dear, one of the things that we believed was always true was that God was at work. That before we walked onto a campus, before we made any calls, before we ever met with a student, before we ever did anything, God was already working on that campus. One of my good friends who uh, ministered at a different campus when I was working for RUF tells the story of his first day on campus. And he was nervous. It was his first time actually as a campus minister. He wasn't exactly sure kind of what to do or how to do things. And so he had gotten kind of all his courage up. He was going to go up to the commons area in the campus and just see if he could meet somebody and introduce himself. And so he said he kind of got up, you know, early, prayed a lot, got ready, got dressed, looked himself in the mirror, did the Stuart Smalley thing. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. 
people like me, right? And then he drove himself to campus and he parked. And as he walked into that commons area, he opened the door and he walked in and there's all these students there that he didn't know. And he became so overwhelmed that he turned around and got back in his car and drove home and took a nap. But he got up the next day, did the same thing. And as he walked in with that courage, with that prayer, he walked in and he looked and just to his right, right inside the door, was this group of six girls sitting around this table. And he just thought, I'll just introduce myself. And he walked over and he said, hey, this is who I am. And one of the girls said, are you the guy coming from RUF? And he said, yeah. And she said, we've been waiting for you. We've been praying for you. We want you to teach us a Bible study. How awesome is that? When he went home and took a nap, God went to work. God was working the whole time. Do you know, actually, psychological studies have been shown that those who even think about who God is, maybe read a passage that has God somehow in there, are actually more likely to, to do riskier things. In these, experience, in these experiments, they'll have people, you know, read a passage about God, and then they'll ask them questions about whether they would engage in things like skydiving or bungee jumping or whatever. And the folks who read something about God are more likely to engage in the riskier behavior. Now, I'm not advocating that you all go skydiving this week, but what I am saying is this, is, this, is that when we know that God is at work, it frees us, doesn't it? When we know that God is at work, it enables us to, to be a little more open-handed. It enables us to, to lean in, to do some riskier things, to move forward in courage, to open ourselves in ways that we never have before, to trust in ways that we never have before, to wonder, maybe even to question in ways that we never have before, because we know that God has us in the palm of His hand. And friends, Jesus has done this exactly for us. Jesus is the better Nehemiah. Jesus receives word, hey, things are broken, right? <laughs> and Jesus, in continual prayer throughout the Gospels, continual communion with his Father, moves into the riskiest, the hardest, the, the opportunity that takes the most courage that's ever happened in the face of the earth. He moves in toward this idea of taking on the weight of the world, the sin of the world, the consequences for the brokenness of the world all upon his own shoulders. And friends, it is because he has done that and accomplished that on our behalf, because Jesus has done that perfectly, we can trust that the Lord is at work and we can move into the difficult situations that he calls us to. Let's pray that God would enable us to do that even now. Pray with me. Good Father, your good hand was at work with Nehemiah, and your good hand is still at work. Lord, would you enable us to embrace, to lean into the difficulty in our lives, to dive into prayer, to immerse ourselves into prayer, to pause to pray when needed, and also to walk forward in courage and in faith. Lord, will you show us how to do that in the difficult things in our individual lives? And will you show us how to do that as a church? We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.